Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and Yed wasn't around for this episode, so I'm joined instead by a special guest. You won't want to miss this discussion. So I'm with uh, Nasr Wadadi, who's a friend of ours. Um, he's a Middle East North Africa consultant who works on youth radicalization and social movements and how these things intersect. And he's always looking at the bigger picture, so we thought he'd have something interesting to say. Nasser, how are you doing? Good, great. It's actually, this is an exciting day. And with all of the build-up towards whether President Trump is going to act on, on his threats uh, related to serious chemical attack or not. So we're recording this on April 10th. The chemical weapons attack was a couple of days ago, and we're just seeing sort of a buzz of activity around Washington. Uh, what's going to happen? This is fascinating. So I just got back from Washington, and I was talking to some friends, including people who are well-connected within the White House. I mean, I'll begin sharing with you like sort of some of the interesting insights. First of all, Remember last week how the press widely reported that that Donald Trump, he came out publicly and said that he wanted to pull out of Syria to just end the U.S. participation there and wrap up the entire operation and go. And then when he was pressed a little bit on it, he said that he's open to saying so long as someone pays for it, like, for example, the Saudis. Yep. Is that going out of the window now? Actually, that's the interesting thing, because here's what my sources tell me. That, first of all, the the internal conversation that happened behind closed doors after the remarks is fascinating. It illuminates sort of the gap between Trump's public rhetoric, what he really says behind closed doors. And actually, contrary to the general perception, Trump is a terrible public communicator. Because what happened behind closed doors is that what he told his generals and his advisors, he was like, I am tasking you, each one of you in area of responsibility and expertise, bring to me options for keeping our military in Syria, but under the following conditions, that this is not going to escalate into confrontation with the Assad regime, that we are not going to be having to send more troops which is colloquially referred to mission creep, and present me with options where U.S. troops are facing the absolute strictest minimum risk and present me with options that are cost us the least, which is fascinating. I mean, what you learn from this beyond the media brouhaha is that President Trump is very much sticking to the blueprint that was put in place for U.S. operations in Syria by President Obama. And that's quite ironic because President Trump spent his election and got himself elected on the premise that he is not Obama. Well, they say the surest way to get him to repeal something is to tell him Obama did it. <laughs> that's true. But like, I think there is a, a little bit of an ironic twist that has been missed, which is in turn, President Obama in his time and I believe that there were reports, but one of his like famous commands to his staff, which is don't do stupid shit, which really meant 
don't give me or present to me any option or anything that President George W. Bush did. I'm going to do exactly the opposite. And this tells you like sort of the, con- the larger conundrum of U.S. policymaking, which is a succession of people whose main goal, overriding goal, is not to look like or repeat or do the same things as the precedent guy. And yet... <laughs> they are really struggling with the continuity of the policy. And and here we are, five years after Obama's famous debacle, after he climbed down from an ultimatum of his own making. And Trump is repeating the same thing. So you're basically referring to when Obama drew a red line and said chemical weapons use in Syria will be grounds for us to step in. And Assad used chemical weapons and Obama didn't step in. He backed off which basically laid the groundwork for over 200 documented instances of chemical weapons use over the last few years in Syria, the latest being just a couple of days ago. And what's, what's the idea here? And that's why this time is really critical. Again, with the internal domestic political complications, you know, Donald Trump resents the Mueller investigation and the suggestions that he might have colluded with the Russians during the campaign and the hack of the the Democratic National Committee and all of the fallout of that, because his fundamental position is is that any suggestions of collusion between his campaign and the Russians is really an attempt to question and undermine the legitimacy of him being elected president of the United States. And it's an incredibly complex tangle web of factors that are being intersecting right now. And that's why this moment is quite critical, because a lot of things hinge on this. America's leadership of the Western world, America's role as the leader of NATO, the expectation that the United States, which was always the deal in the post-World War II order, is that America is going to be the bulwark that's going to be protecting the Europeans in particular from the Soviet Union back then. And increasingly now there's demand that America stands up to protect the Western world from uh, Vladimir Putin. and that's only accentuated or, or aggravated by the crisis between Britain and the Russians over the poisoning of the former Russia, Russian spy in Britain recently through the use, by the way, of chemical a chemical agent, which is, in a sense, Britain's position is like Vladimir Putin's Russia just used a chemical weapon on our soil. It's not okay to do it here. Go ahead in Syria. Just not at home. Yeah, yeah, you could do that stuff over there. But even over there, the fascinating thing, British Prime Minister Theresa May seems to be taking a much more militant stand. So Nasser, I know you have a real passion for Cold War history, and especially the effects of the Cold War on Arab world political dynamics. Is that what we're going to see again now? Another polarization of the Arab world into two camps, um, one siding with the Western bloc, one siding with the Russian bloc? and, you know, everything that that brought with it? Oh, the polarization is already here. And, and the polarization this time around is, is actually even more, I would say, more fragmented than last time, meaning during the, the first Cold War. By the way, yes, we are in a second Cold War. There are a lot of analysts out there that reject the premise, but I personally believe we are in a second Cold War um, between Putin's Russia and the Western world and with China looking on the side and opportunistically trying to take advantage of the situation for its own goals. But in the Arab world, in a sense, the position today is, is incredible. First of all, 
on the Russian column, you can basically add that Moscow's allies and the, the countries or the players that support Moscow's policy in Syria and beyond are obviously Bashar al-Assad, Iraq, and Algeria. And some people would argue also that even players in Libya like Khalifa Haftar are part of that axis. But that's another debate for another time, but at least that's what some people believe. And on the other side, you have America's tr traditional allies, which includes Morocco on the far end of the, the western edge of the Arab world, and then the GCC states. But it's a unique situation. The GCC states are literally in, uh, engaged in this fratricide war between brothers, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the UAE on one side, and Qatar on the other. And this further adds more complication. And, and that's particularly surprising. At least those of us of a certain age would have never thought that the Gulf states will be at odds with each other to the point of actively undermining each other. Let's, let's face it. The GCC, like is any other block of nations, they've always had problems uh, and misunderstandings and divergent opinions and even competition. But it was always resolved within the tent, so to speak. It never got out of hand like to this point, like we've seen with the beginning of the crisis in last June. The thing is that the energy picture is changing dramatically to the point where oil-producing nations are losing strategic value as the world moves on to more cleaner sources of energy and with the development of alternative oil sources like shale. And the United States is, is nearing has hit another record in terms of oil exports. So not only has it dramatically dropped its imports from the Middle East, but it's actually exporting oil and competing with them, which creates, again, another interesting opening. I mean, the, the, there was news that came out that Saudi Arabia was in talks with Russia, again, the, the enemy of sorts, to reach like some a long-term, a 10-year understanding to uh, control oil prices because both countries were hit by the uh, downturn very hard, severely actually, because the Russians are a lot more vulnerable because it costs them, like their oil operations are a lot less efficient than the Saudis. And that creates this inter interesting dynamic. What is really happening, what I'm getting at is that in this second Cold War, globalization is also having this fascinating impact on the on the interactions between the, all the different players and changing perspective and what's really at stake. And I would point out that the UAE has also a very good relationship with Russia because the UAE, unlike Saudi Arabia, has never taken any militant stance on the conflict in Syria, unlike the Saudis, who made considerable investments, at least during the time of King Abdullah. And the Qataris, who took also made massive investments in Syria and disproportionately bigger than their real size in Syria on the Turkish axis, which is, by the way, another dimension to all of this. And I would add, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, like there was one country on the Iran-Russia axis that I didn't mention, which is Lebanon. And that brings us to the crisis that happened recently with Rafiq al-Hariri, according to some sources, alleged detention in Saudi Arabia, and according to other sources, severe dressing down. Well, they go even further than that. Some sources say that he was basically 
summoned under false pretenses, had his phone confiscated, wasn't allowed to leave, and was repeatedly slapped as they tried to intimidate him. That's what the story was widely reported back then. And interestingly, it was marketed by certain circles in the West as uh, a prelude for for a second Lebanese civil war, which is truly a laughable and amateurish read of the situation, as if Lebanon was going to go to war again over Saad al-Hariri. The people who proposed, like sort of the, who pushed this narrative, um, kind of forgot to explain exactly how are Hezbollah's opponents in Lebanon supposed to wage that war, with what weapons and what means, which is ridiculous. And then, which brings us to really the, the, the rather, the latest iteration, which is like sort of the selfie uh, taken by uh, pri- Lebanese Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri with the King of Morocco and Saudi Arabia's uh, Crown Prince, MBS, which seemed to be a belated response to try it again to quell that rumor or that narrative. That's a really weird way of conducting diplomacy. Diplomacy by selfie. Everyone would like to um, sort of downplay and minimize the role of social media in current Arab affairs, but the fact is, is that verifiably, at least the beginning, the beginning of the intra-Gulf crisis was actually a, a social media phenomenon, and most of the battle is actually being waged today via social media. It's interesting that we went from 2011-2012 very excitedly celebrating the role of social media in the Arab Revolution to 2013-16, a bit of disillusionment and saying, you know, the social media was very overrated, whilst the counter-revolution took hold. And this year and last year, there's a very panicked realization that, oh my God, it really is happening and it doesn't look good with coups being conducted, psyops, elections being influenced. Yeah, the the ugly side of social media is being picked on increasingly. And there's a lot of complaints, ironically, here in the Western world, particularly in the United States. The liberal side of the aisle (laughs) loved social media and Facebook when it was a magical tool that allowed the Obama campaign in 2008 and 2012 to crush the Republicans. But when the Republicans started picking up on the game, you know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal that was used, hired by pro-Trump operatives, when they realized that the other side has learned and is using their own, so to speak, weapon against them, now there's a huge disillusionment with social media. And, like, there's not a day that we don't see at least on my stream, and I'm sure on your stream, all of these big-name journalists who, who are constantly bemoaning and, and, and decrying social media, yet they're still on it. That's the irony of the entire situation, in my opinion. Well, you could say that the issue is not necessarily the social media in itself, but the abuse of data, theft of data, unethical things being done like that. Yes, exactly. And, and in our region of concern, oh, yes. All the players have picked up the importance of social media, and actually, in their own ways, they've become very sophisticated in using it. I'm talking here about the regimes versus 2011, when they had really no idea. I remember like famous stories of of security forces beating people to basically get them to open their phones and uh, like looking for photos and pictures, but not realizing that what they really needed to look into was their Twitter accounts. And then another wave of repression where they were like just arresting anybody who had Twitter or Facebook on their phone. 
they moved from that primitive understanding to actually wielding it extremely effectively. Well, now, today, large parts of Arab social media are almost unusable, and a lot of people have been driven offline because of the weaponization of bot accounts, automated accounts created in huge numbers and run by algorithms, which basically spew 24-7 propaganda or disinformation or, or just abuse. And that, by the way, the Arab region in that sense is very, is not particularly unique or an outlier. It's just simply picking up on the on the global trend where authoritarian regimes, Russia's, China's, to mention a few who are really truly the pioneers in taking social media and and using it offensively to to basically crush any any forms of free expression and to advance their foreign policy agenda in ways that have never seen before. I know that the, the facile uh, critique here would be like to say, oh, the West has been doing this for years. There's like simply no comparison of scale and the particular uses that like the Russians and Chinese have developed. And it's a, it's a point of caution as well for listeners in the West. These are basically new models of authoritarian repression which are being innovated in china and in the gulf and it's it's all very fine ignoring them right now when they don't affect you but this is basically the the weapons testing ground and the laboratory for the next generation of abuses which are going to come to the west just like cambridge analytica was influencing elections in nigeria and other places in the global south long before it turned its hand to american elections you know, it's it's the old adage that Yed likes to repeat that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Absolutely. But I think that the other lesson here is that, which I think is missed on a lot of people, is that open societies, democratic societies, by definition, are a lot more vulnerable to these propaganda techniques than than authoritarian societies. What is basically happening is that like the Russians are taking advantage of the wide space of uh, freedom that exists in the West, and taking those liberties and using it against Western societies. And that, I think, that is, that, that is increasingly obvious, but I don't think that it's pointed out enough times for people to appreciate. That's a paradox of, uh, of free societies, which is we're vulnerable to that kind of, more vulnerable to that kind of manipulation because our media including social media, are virtually unregulated. There's no censorship in the classical sense. Whereas in China, like for example, I don't know if you read the latest reports, I was looking at in one of the technology magazines, the Chinese government has been forcing the uh, Muslims in uh, Xinjiang, eastern Turkestan, the Uyghurs, to install these these applications on their phone pushing them directly to their phones under the penalty of prison if they don't install it. These are basically uh, pieces of software that are scanning their phones for any materials deemed illegal by the Chinese government, meaning like religious content and imagery or anything that the Communist Party of China deems a threat to state security, which virtually means anything that is not published by the Chinese government. And these people are basically being sent to political re-education camps in the thousands or even in the tens of thousands, according to some reports. Yes. For us, that's a stark reminder. Uh, It's frightening. What if our regimes in our region begin deploying these kind of tools? Like, What's to keep them? 
I don't think that there's anything to keep them from doing it. And what if this kind of data gathering and analysis turns into what we're seeing with social credit apps in China, where essentially not only your credit score, but things like whether you're allowed to travel outside the country, your eligibility for visas, um, your eligibility for college, your ability to get passports or driving licenses, you know, it, it has a pervasive influence on every aspect of your life. And it's determined by data which is opaquely gathered, things like who you hang out with, what you buy when you go to the store, maybe what books you read, or what films you watch. You know, a really startling example of how invasive authoritarianism can become. Absolutely. For our listeners, I think the most fundamental question is that what is keeping Arab and Middle Eastern governments from deploying these tactics? And experience shows that I have to say, based on, on, on the past history, is that nothing is keeping them from, from deploying these tactics. So right now, the prospects for liberty and freedom do not look great to say the least. So zooming back out again and returning to the current crisis in the Arab world, we've mentioned Obama's foreign policy and his legacy dating back from 2013 on this podcast before. What's at stake with the potential current decision on whether to recommit to Syria? On the global scene, what is really at stake is America's credibility. Nothing short of that. And Vladimir Putin has made a gamble that America was run by weak men who will not um, challenge him in any meaningful way. Will not stand up for what they believe in and for liberty. Yes. And that also what he's banking on is Western electors' apathy and fatigue with the Middle East, which they see as a constant, like sort of a constant headache a place where nothing works and likely to work, which we're best served staying away from. And um, ultimately, what is at stake is, is the very idea of democracy itself, is that are we entering an age where democracy is on the run and is waning as an idea, and where authoritarianism is the future model, or... Western democracies are going to be able to stand back and reclaim some of the lost terrain. That's on the larger stake. In the Arab world, what is really at stake, again, remains invariably changed. Whenever we talk about Syria, I would say that the conversation ceased to be at Syria uh, about Syria itself. In Sometime in 2012, the first uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard officers started showing up in Damascus. What we're really talking about is Iran's expansion in the Middle East. That's what is at stake. And part of the internal discussions and the debates that are going on in the Trump administration is how to handle the Iranian role in the, in the larger Middle East. Of course, a lot of you've seen probably reports about the new national security advisor, John Bolton, who is a truly hawkish voice on on these issues and he he particularly has it in for iran and he's been calling for forceful action against the iranians for decades so by all accounts he should fit in really well with mohammed bin salman it's sitting very well with mohammed bin salman and it's sitting well with many of the um, 
the Arab leaders who are on that on that side of the equation. And again, earlier, I think that one of the most fascinating cases to talk about in this respect or sort of in this new global Cold War, Cold War point two, is Egypt, which is a fascinating case. This is Egypt organically supported and, and sort of floated by Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Kuwait, nations who, whose hostility to Iran is not feigned, it's real and it's, and it's visceral, while Abdel Fattah al-Sisi clearly completely departed from the, at least the official Saudi position on Syria. He maintains very good, although discreet, relations with Bashar al-Assad. Ali Mamluk has been several times. Ali Mamluk is the head of, uh, is basically number two in the Assad regime and is the head of the uh, military intelligence service, one of Syria's 17 security organizations. It fascinates me that a, a government would require 17 different security organizations. There's, there's a similar anecdote in Libya where we had a similar number of intelligence organizations and there was a story that Gaddafi essentially set them up to watch each other because if he had just one intelligence organization, he could never be sure that they weren't planning to overthrow him. Guess where he learned that from? Just take a guess. Was that from the Syrians? Absolutely. That was from, uh, from the Hafezal-Assad regime. Well, there's some really interesting evidence of where the, the Syrians learned it from. Apparently, they gained a lot of their intelligence capability in the 50s when members of the Nazi regime were on the run trying to escape the Nuremberg trials. Some of them went to South America, some of them sought refuge in Syria and ended up providing consultancy services for the nascent intelligence services. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would add to that that also in the 60s and the 70s, once Syria became increasingly a client of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, a lot of their officers got training both from the KGB and East Germany's infamous Stasi. And by the way, the, uh, the technical term is coup-proofing. That's why uh, all of these agencies are created and the redundancy is created so that not one of any of these agencies can basically become dominant and therefore threaten the regime. And they're all set up to really surveil each other more than anything. And that's why, by the way, like the Syrian regime and other Arab intelligence services, they're not really good at surveilling or gathering information on foreign targets. Hence, other established intelligence services being able to completely run circles around them, including Israel's. But one has to admit they're exceedingly good at surveilling and keeping tabs on their own citizens. You can also say that Arab armies are not very good at fighting wars with foreign powers. The only victories that they've won in recent decades are against their own populations. Yeah, I mean, uh, when was the last time an Arab army won a battle? like sort of against any set of foes didn't happen in a very long time i don't want to upset people but uh i will not give no precise numbers because i don't want to hurt anybody's nationalism uh, one of the most indicative and illustrative uh, episodes of that point was like Gaddafi's adventure adventures in the 80s in chad where he like basically the, the libyan army ended up like getting absolutely crushed by what, in a sense, was a bunch of ragtag militias on on jeeps 
I actually have relatives who were conscripted and dragged along to Chad in that conflict. I've only ever heard them speak about it once. They must carry a lot of trauma. But um, they basically described watching executions of civilians, watching grad missiles launched at small villages of tents. Yeah, and it's actually the most important thing here. It's very traumatic. It's basically the Libyan military, at least on paper, was a modern army with modern Soviet equipment that was completely defeated in, in such a humiliating fashion. Another episode of this was um, the Sahara War, where the Polisario were running circles against Mauritania and, and the Moroccans to the point that the Mauritanians completely pulled out of the war in 1978, and the Moroccans were on the verge of losing the whole thing. The only thing that saved them was building these like series of defensive positions or walls that stretch along their border, which are, by the way, flaring up. These are some like some of the forgotten issues. Someone pointed out that arguably there are more Arab states today that have better relationships with Israel than the the relationship between Algeria and Morocco. Two days ago, the king of Morocco apparently threatened military action if the Polisario weren't to stop entering what is in a sense a buffer zone between the Moroccan berm. By the way, this is kind of misunderstood. A lot of people, when they look at the map, they think that all of Western Sahara is under Moroccan control. That's not true. Morocco controls only the sections west and north west of the berm. And without getting into much details, like the conflict is really heating up in ways that were not expected a decade ago. In the traditions of Cold War, the, the Cold War, the King of Morocco is working double shift on maintaining and creating a very good working relationship with Moscow, which is Algeria's traditional ally. And the Algerians themselves are also trying to maintain these relationships and keep uh, or instrumentalize their, their traditional allies, which are uh, Russia and China. And that probably is one of the reasons that the Algerians also are kind of uh, heating up the rhetoric. So it sounds like Moscow is pretty in demand in the Arab world, especially these days. They're seen as the right guys to know. Um, Putin is the man to know. He's the right kind of ally. He'll stick up for you. He'll help you. Whereas being a friend of America, it doesn't seem to be seen as any kind of currency at the moment. And that's one of the legacies of the Obama administration, particularly in the Gulf states. And also, I would say, in, like in Egypt and in Morocco and Jordan, America is seen as this unreliable partner. Talks big, makes all sorts of demands, but doesn't really follow through. And that's one of the reasons that the Gulf states, in particular, are enamored with Donald Trump. Because of his hardline rhetoric on, uh, on Iran, which, by the way, remains, remains just a bunch of talk if you, if you really look at the details. And they feel that he, they have a friend in him and uh, a listening ear, a friendly ear in the Oval. Something they haven't had at least for eight years. Now, whether, whether that sentiment is justified or not, I think the jury is still on that. I'm not so sure that Donald Trump is the friend that the Gulf states think that he is. 
And also, it's not clear whether he will end up delivering on any of the things that they care about most. For instance, for the Saudis and the Emiratis, they were looking for ways to get America to ostracize and contain Qatar. That didn't quite happen. They're looking for a response, or they're hoping that he cancels the nuclear deal. That also still hasn't happened, even though a lot of people seem to be sure that that's going to happen. And uh, their main uh, proof for it is the appointment of uh, John Bolton. And I'd probably say that the third thing that they're looking for him to deliver on, at least rhetorically, some sort of deal uh, between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And frankly, I don't think they themselves believe that that's going to ever happen. So it sounds like friends of authoritarian regimes can be pretty consistently relied on to show up when it matters, whereas people who proclaim themselves to be friends of democracy, liberal values, human rights, stretching way back decades, can be counted upon pretty surely to not show up when the going gets rough. And, you know, you can trace this back to 1991 when President George Bush Sr. urged the Iraqis to rise up against Saddam Hussein, and they did. 14 out of 18 provinces rose up against him, and the help that he promised never came, and Saddam regained control. You know, you have Libya 2011, when the world was happy to bomb Gaddafi, but when it came to the less glamorous work of helping to build a stable system and run fair elections, again, nobody really showed up. You have Egypt, where the world talked a big game about democracy. When there was a coup, nobody really showed up. You know, CC is now being welcomed in capitals across the West, London, Washington, Berlin. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I just wanted to put a little bit, a little bit of the context here. Don't forget, the Iraq war and the Iraq invasion happened in between. And the dominant forces uh, ultimately within, within, within these democratic societies, the forces that ended up emerging after the, the Iraq invasion drew certain lessons, be it on the left and on the right. And those lessons were that the Arab world or Arab countries in, intervening there is a very bad idea. For any reason whatsoever, basically just don't ever get involved. Yes, which is, in my opinion, an extreme reading of the situation. And that's why we ended up having the Obama administration behaving the way it behaved with Syria, um, because they seem to have drawn the wrong lessons from the, and, and applied them to the wrong country. Basically, the lessons of Iraq drowned out the lessons of Srebrenica and Kosovo, the lessons of Rwanda. And even the lessons of the 1991 uh, uprising in Iraq, uh, Intifada Shabaniya, February 1991, which you just mentioned earlier. I mean, actually, it's scary how similar that was to what happened in Syria in 2011, which was you had the bulk of the country rise, topple the, the strong guy. And there were like, if they had gotten any support, Saddam Hussein could have been toppled right then and that, right there by his own people, not by some uh, on the top on top of a, a foreign tank, but by his own people. And yet, at the time in 1991, again, it was a Republican administration, a conservative administration, the more sort of called realistic wing of the conversation at the time, people like Brent Scowcroft and uh, Colin Powell, who were like absolutely uh, opposed to going into an Arab capital and occupying it. And they won the debate. And that's how 
the, the like sort of the uh, February uprising was ditched. And it's important to state again that Bush Senior explicitly promised on a radio broadcast to Iraqi citizens that if you rise up against this tyrant, the U.S. will be there to support you and will be behind you. Yes, and 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 if you remember the rhetoric of the Obama, the public rhetoric of the Obama administration of and of, of Congress at the beginning of the Syrian uprising, I was personally in Gaziantep up to, to like in 2013, and the United States was spending hundreds of millions of dollars supporting civil society. I'm talking here about money and per, training programs that were going to civil society. These had nothing to do with the military side, absolutely nothing. What happened is that the Obama administration and a wing of the Obama administration, more so in the White House than it than in the State Department, from the very good go wanted nothing to do with Syria, and they came like they they came armed with their own reading of what happened in Iraq and why America failed in Iraq, and they were like, no, we're not gonna do anything with this. And in, and uh, with time, it was quite clear that the Obama administration made a strategic choice to. Uh, come to some sort of a strategic understanding with Iran um, as a balance of power in the Middle East in view of an American retreat out of the Middle East. And of course, uh, uh, the the transactional bit or the, the bargaining chip that, that triggered this was Obama's desire, and I should point out, legitimate desire to contain the Iranian nuclear program, which is a problem for everybody. And that's how the Iran deal was born. And as I've said many times, even back then, publicly on, on Twitter, the Iran deal, no matter how one feels about it, both opponent or proponent, the one thing that no one can deny about it, at least in my opinion, it would be absolutely intellectually dishonest to deny that was it, that it was inked in Syrian blood. The United States, for the past three, four administrations of uh, some people would argue that that's a, a trend that stretches even longer, way, way back, have a history of unreliability. But what is unique, particularly unique about the Obama administration is that, at least in the Arab side of the equation, Democrats and liberals of the Arab world were disappointed by the Obama administration, starting with his 2008 uh, famous Cairo speech. And by the time he, he, he like the uprisings, happened he was also despised by the arab regimes and this is unique i don't know of any instance where an american president was so uniformly hated by both the oppositions the liberal democratic oppositions and the authoritarian regimes of in the arab world it's quite unique so let's put our idealist hats on what should u.s policy towards the region be you know what should they be doing because uh, for a lot of people, asking that question is basically asking who should they be invading. You know, it's a binary of we stay out and leave it as it is, or we invade militarily and bomb stuff. Okay, I think that actually that is absolutely the wrong premise for anyone to think in a productive way about the Arab world. I think that some a set of the questions they should ask, given the current political systems and the, and, and the economic models that exist in the Arab world. In 10 years, the Arab world will have half a billion citizens. And around the halfway benchmark in the 21st century, the Arab world is going to hit 1 billion. 
the question that like uh, the question that any any I'd say uh, reasonably minded observer should be asking is what kind of governance is there right now in the Arab world? What is the relationship between the existing political and economical models and the upheavals in the Arab world? How are there going to be responsible governments in that in that area of the world that's going to herald economic models that are going to create jobs, that's going to help citizens create wealth on their own, the private sector or via via the government, and that will provide education, provide health care, and ultimately provide dignity, allow citizens to live in dignity. That's where the analysis should start. Because when you don't have a system that allows dignity, you end up with people trying to leave. And that's difficult for the world to deal with right now with 300 million Arabs and with one country falling apart. If you end up with a population of 1 billion and a few more Arab countries breaking at the seams, this will basically bring down Europe. Not only that, but I think that, the, and this is the aspect where I myself, as someone who prides himself on being a realist, but I would point out is like that's where the moral dimension of the question is that these countries are going to hell in a handbasket. There's no way around it. Anyone who tells you, dear listener, otherwise is lying to you. Their future is absolutely bleak. Despite all of the oil under the ground, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You know why? Because the Arab regimes left to their own devices. Look at Iraq. They're even incapable with all their wealth. They're incapable of having providing 24-hour water and electricity in the, um, in the country. And I would actually engage with the other side of the, the opinion, particularly in the West. I would be, even guys, be self-interested. No one is asking you to be idealistic or naive about the complexities and the dangers of the modern world. It's a, it's a fact that the Middle East has been this vortex spewing violence, terrorism, and extremism for the past 40 years. And so the question that you should ask yourselves is that how do we realistically, on the long term, protect ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren from the Middle East's disasters embarking on our shores? And part of the answer will have to be, we have to get serious about this governance thing, which means really reanalyzing, re-examining how we even think what, what we think are really Western interests in the Middle East, beyond sort of the classical, sort of the cliche, what our Western interest in the Middle East is freedom of passage in the Suez Canal and the strategic uh, waterways, ensuring the energy supplies, Israel, and all these parameters. I would say that if, you really, if you're really serious about this, and if you're talking about this problem as adults, there's no way around a question of governance. Uh, no one is asking anybody to invade. The Arabs have themselves made this plenty clear. No one wants some Western invasion or some Western liberation army to come liberate people. What I think is more strategic is that you should always hold accountable rulers in the Arab world and work with them, cajole them, and if need be, twist their arms to ensure that they, they don't become mafias generating problems that will show up on your doorsteps. So, guys, actually be very self-interested when you think about the Arab world and ask the per perennial question, which is, what's in it for us? What's in it for, for you, 
in the West is you don't want the Middle East to be showing up at your doorstep because guess what? If trends continue this way, the economies and the demography, global warming and wars, the Middle East, chances are probably none of you will ever set foot in the Middle East, but you can be assured that by at least 2045 or 2050, a big chunk of the Middle East will be showing up in your neighborhood. Europe basically learned the hard way over the last two years that you cannot insulate yourself from a crisis. If you don't prevent the crisis from happening, then the crisis will affect you. I think that you are being very charitable uh, about Europe, at least the, the ruling elites, and to a certain extent the public opinions. I don't think that they've learned any lesson. The only reaction was like basically, understandably, was an angry, emotional one and a very short-sighted one. And I point you here to like the European policy, for example, vis-à-vis -vis Libya, uh, which is a case study in all of this. Notice how I'm deliberately dodging Syria. I'm actually going back to Libya, where they, the only thing they're thinking about is like, how do we stop the migrants to come through? And that's where a lot of the effort is going, where in reality, the bigger question is that if you want migrants to stop coming uh, via Libya, you have to have a stable government there. You have to work and getting in place, getting those guys to get their act together, using the wide spectrum of tools that are available to get them to do that. But that's not what is happening. Well, there's this insistence, uh, this really bizarre insistence that European governments are actually helpless and there's nothing we can do and there's no leverage that we have over these guys. They're just unmanageable. And this is you know, either really misinformed or it's dishonest because there are so many levers at the disposal of world powers, be they economic sanctions, travel bans, which disrupt the elites and, you know, prevent them from enjoying ill-gotten gains, diplomatic pressure, arms embargoes. I would like sort of even articulate it more clearly. The reaction uh, of Europe and the backlash was, we're going to change our immigration laws. We'll be darned if you allowed any more of these people to set foot here. But guess what? As we say in Mauritania, it's almost akin to to plant a garden in, in the ocean. They're wasting their time. And they're looking at what their, the policies that they're pursuing, in a sense, are very short term and do not treat the, the problem at their source. Of course, I am totally sympathetic because I, th I can already hear some of the listeners saying, well, that's easy for you to say. You're sitting in America. What is it that we should do concretely? I would say that, yes, fixing the Arab world is not your problem. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be your problem. But guess what? That's where things are. The Arab world is broken. And um, those immigrants and those terrorists and, all, and these problems are not going to just stop showing up at your doorstep unless you take part in fixing those problems. They're not going to solve their, themselves. And that's actually largely, I think, the lesson of the past 40 years. The Arab world is not going to fix itself. So really the same old adage again, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. You can't ignore this stuff. Yes, even though that, like, basically the way you phrased it, I, I don't disagree with it. I think I believe wholeheartedly in that. But I would say that that's a, a romantic way of putting it. I think that what, what the audiences need to hear is that that to be translated into a less romantic injunction or call to action, which is it's not going to solve itself. 
And it's if you think that this problem is going to solve itself on its own without you taking parts in some of the dirty work, you are dreaming. Or rather, you have a hundred million Arabs coming your way. So we mentioned all of these conflicts, Morocco, Algeria, Morocco, Western Sahara, Libya, the Gulf crisis, Syria. Um, I'm going to ask you a question which could make you cry and it could make you laugh. Probably both, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why can't the Arab League solve this? I think I'm going to laugh. The Arab League is a mirror image of the Arab world itself. It's this toy thing that is completely emptied from any substance and is structurally incapable of playing any role because it's really hostage to whoever writes the, the check. And that has been changing historically. In addition to its headquartered in, in Egypt, in Sisi's Egypt, and traditionally by tradition, the general secretary position is uh, reserved to Egypt. Like if you combine these two factors and then the, the, the successive hegemonies like uh, the Arab League had its uh, Nasser period and then it had its uh, its Libya period and then it had its Iraq period and then it had its Qatar period and it had its Saudi period. The fact of the matter is, is that it's a completely hopeless and dysfunctional place. Even though that I have to, for the disclosure, my father used to be an Arab League's employee. He worked as uh, the Arab League's representative in Addis Ababa for an extended period of time. So my judgment is somewhat informed by first-hand experiences. But I have to say, the one positive thing that I can say about the Arab world is that they have a fantastic research unit that produces first-class information and studies about the, uh, the Arab world, which, by the way, needless to say that... M- none of the Arab governments reads nor acts on. Well, it sounds like this is, you're basically describing an exaggerated version of the failures of the UN. You could say a lot of the same stuff about it, that it's held hostage to whoever writes the check, as we've seen with the US cutting funding to bodies which recognize Palestine, like UNESCO. You could say that it's held hostage by, you know, the dictator of the day who happens to sit on the UN Security Council. At the moment, that's Putin. Um, you can say that bodies like the High Commission for Human Rights, like the Women's Rights Council, are infested with dictatorships who don't respect women's rights or human rights. My attitude towards all of these organizations is that the UN, the Arab League, the African Union, again, Mauritanian by birth, so the African Union is a rather important organization <laughs> that had played a role in shaping my worldview. These organizations are not these autonomous entities. They're really the sum product of their member states. And they reflect the dysfunction and the bad faith of their member states. And that's a flaw that I, I would say is about international relations and the, and the nature of the leaders. Rather than these machines that are the UN or the African Union or the Arab League, Please don't misunderstand me as defending any of these institutions. I, I am myself a very harsh critic of their dysfunction, as I as I mentioned earlier. And I think that like sort of the larger thing that came out of this conversation is that guys, if you think that the Arab world is anywhere near stability, I think that you have not been watching closely. And 
also the perception, like sort of, you know, the famous uh, saying, inshallah, everything is going to get better. <laughs> I would say that, inshallah, nothing is going to get better. They are actually things are only going to get worse. And, and we're, we, like literally, we don't produce anything of value that we could uh, sell in, in the global market. Like the only thing that, that we had in abundance was oil. The oil is losing, losing value as we speak. Short of like barring some unforeseen technological advancement, if we continue on this path, on this trend, the, there could be a critical moment that we, the only thing that we would have of value to sell and in abundance would be sand. What, our problem right now is that we don't have any real coherent economies that could compete and produce anything of value um, in, on the global market. And actually, I would like to point out this, is that if you take, for example, the GDP of Italy and Turkey and put them together, there are, guess what? The combined GDP of Turkey and Italy is bigger than the entire GDP of the Arab world. And an even more painful one to admit for many Arabs, if you take the GDP of Italy and Israel and add them together, you'll get more like the GDP still bigger than the entire Arab world combined. And Italy's not exactly uh, known as a paragon of productivity and efficiency. Yeah, it's actually, there was this great piece, um, I think it was in the New Yorker a while ago, where they said that like basically Italy is the country that has the smartest secretaries in Europe and the dumbest bosses, which by the way, sounds very much like the Arab world. Maybe we should start calling Italy Northern Arabia. <laughs> I don't want to offend any Italian friends, but I would say, guys, my friends in Italy, we're a lot more similar than anyone is comfortable to admit. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Well, on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Nasser, and I'm sure we'll have you on here again. So thanks for your time. Sure. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. Please do rate us on whatever app you're listening with, share it, and join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag Arab Tyrant Manual. You can find me on Twitter at Gatnash. Nasser is on Twitter at Widadi, W-E-D-D-A-D-Y. You can find the links in the description. And thank you for listening. See you next time. زمانك سيأتي يمحو زمان المزين